As you make your way back to your seats, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. To Ephesians chapter 1 for the next... Uh, well, let me just again welcome you. If you're visiting with us, my name is Pastor Michael. I'm privileged to serve as one of the pastors here at Newbreed Church. We're thankful that you're visiting with us. And you've come first Sunday of the year. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to start a little mini-series this morning. We're going to be taking, continuing in our break from the book of John. And just as we start this year, consider our mission and the purpose of this covenant community that we call Newbreed. As many of you know, our mission statement is this, that we exist to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel. So if you want to boil down what this church is all about, there it is. We exist to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel. So not only do we define ourselves by that mission, but we also evaluate ourselves by that mission. So in other words... If you want to see if Newbreed Church is being faithful, the question we ask as individuals and collectively is, are we existing to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel? But before we can answer that question, we have to understand what we mean by that mission statement. So what we like to do at the start of each year is just review our mission statement. We do it for a few reasons. First, to make sure that we understand it but two, to evaluate our efforts, and three, to encourage you and I to be about that mission. I just want to say this at the start of this series, and and I I mean this. I am praying this year that this would be the year that Newbury Church owns the mission that God has given us with a fervor and an intentionality that surpasses anything we've ever done before. This month, marks 10 years that New Breed has been in existence. And we praise God for that. But I am praying that this year will be the best. And then that next year will be even better than this. That we would own this mission that God has called us to. See, it can't just be the pastors who are attempting to fulfill the mission. It can't just be the deacons who are attempting to fulfill the mission. We collectively, as a church, as a covenant community, together, we are declaring that this is our mission. This is what we want to see and be about. But the beauty of that mission is I believe it's a mission that comes from Scripture, not just a single verse or a single book of the Bible, but a mission that we believe permeates the Bible and succinctly defines what it means to be a faithful Christian in a faithful church. So with that in mind, I want to take these next few weeks and consider our mission, but we're going to do it specifically by looking at the book of Ephesians. And I believe as we walk through this book, we can actually define and defend our mission based on what Paul writes in this epistle. So I want this morning to look at Ephesians chapter one in its entirety. And I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word as I read Ephesians chapter one, the entire chapter. Beginning in verse one, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to these sweet words beginning in verse three. 
Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. And in him, we have also received an inheritance. Because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. So that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you also believed, were sealed in him with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Paul says in verse 15, this is why since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward you who believe according to the mighty working of his strength? Now, here's the power. Verse 20, he says, he exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand, at his right hand in the heavens. Far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointing him as the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. And this morning, as we consider our mission statement, I want us to think about just two words. We exist. We exist. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask that this morning, God, that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we are ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. (coughs) Y'all good this morning? All right. This morning... Excuse me, as we begin this series that we've just entitled The Mission, I want, to, I want us to simply consider Ephesians 1 in light of the first two words of our mission statement. We exist. We exist. So back in 2006, I think I've used this movie as an illustration before, and I'm going to use it again. But back in 2006, the movie 300 came out. Now listen, I'm not saying you should watch it. I'm not endorsing that movie. Back in 2006, I'm just saying some of us did watch it. And I'm just going to try to redeem my time by pulling a sermon illustration out of it. Praise God. 
Amen. Sanctification is progressive. Thank you, Pastor. Keeping me humble. The movie 300, if you know anything about it, which hopefully you don't, but if you do, it's based loosely on the historic events surrounding the Battle of Thermopylae in 480 BC, a real battle that happened. It recounts the story of Spartan warriors going out to confront the invading Persian army. Now, there's a scene in the movie that's interesting to me. I doubt it happened in real life, but it makes for a great movie scene. And so King Leonidas is the king of the Spartans. He leads his 300 soldiers to meet the Persian army, thousands and thousands of them. He's going to meet them in conflict. But as they're traveling, they meet up with Arcadians from another region in Greece. Uh, and so the Arcadians come, they see King Leonidas, they say that they heard that he was going to go fight and that they wanted to join in the fight. But the leader of the Arcadians looked at King Leonidas and he's a little bit frustrated because he, an Arcadian, having gathered a huge army, looks at King Leonidas and these 300 soldiers and he confronts the king. And he says, how is it that we've gathered this huge army and you've only brought 300 Again, this is, a, this is a dope scene. And then King Leonidas looks. He doesn't respond to the leader, but he looks at one of the Arcadian soldiers holding a spear and a shield. And he says, you, what's your profession? And the man answers and says, I'm a potter. And then he points to another. He says, and you, what is your profession? And the man replies, a sculptor. And then he looks at a third. And you, and he responds, a blacksmith. And then he turns to his soldiers and he says, Spartans, what's your occupation? And they let out in unison this amazing war cry. And King Leonidas says, you see, old friend, I brought more soldiers than you did. You see, his point was that what made these men competent and capable beyond and above the Arcadians was that the very identity of these men from Sparta centered around war. It was their identity and it defined their very existence. They trained for war. They thought about war. They strategized for war. And when the time came, they were really good at fighting wars. Now, here's the point I'm trying to illustrate. How we understand our existence and our identity has ramifications for how we live our life. So in our mission statement, when we say that we exist, we are making a claim that seeks, that seeks to speak to our very identity. And in order to proper, properly understand our identity, we have to understand what, or in our case more accurately, who it is that gets to define our identity. Let me, let me say it another way. I think one of the reasons the church at large fails to accomplish what God has called her to accomplish is because we as the members of the church usually root our primary identity in the wrong things. We primarily define ourselves by our jobs. We primarily define ourselves by our families. We primarily define ourselves by our ethnicities. We primarily define ourselves by our struggles and our illnesses. Dare I say, we primarily define ourselves by our political affiliations. And please hear me, it's not wrong to recognize the role of any of those things in your life, but it becomes dangerous when those become the primary things we identify ourselves by. I like the way that I heard Lecrae, the Christian hip hop artist, explain it just a couple of weeks ago. If you missed it, it was great. You should look it up. Uh, the Today Show, I think it was right before Christmas, did an expose on him. 
And he was asked in the interview if he was a Christian who did hip hop or a hip hop artist who happened to be a Christian. And Lecrae responded, I love this response. He said, I believe that Christian is a better noun than it is an adjective. I'll give you a grammar lesson. You know what a noun is, right? Say it with me. What's a noun? Uh, y'all are sharp. A person, a place, or a thing. What's an adjective? Yeah, it, it describes a noun, right? It, 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 it modifies a noun. And so what, what Lecrae is saying is that Christian is a better noun. It's better at defining the, place in, uh, the person, the place, or the thing. Then he went on to say that being a believer in Jesus defines, he says, who I am. He said, that's what defines me as a person. In other words, he was articulating where his identity lies. It wasn't in the music that he made. His identity is found in Jesus. Here's the reason why it's so dangerous when the wrong things become the primary things that we find our identity in. Whatever we primarily define our identity by will be the thing that takes precedence in our life. Let me say that again. Whatever we primarily define our identity by or in, it will be the thing that takes precedence in our life. So when things inevitably compete for your time and your attention, when they compete for your focus and your effort, whatever you primarily define yourself by will be the things that win out in those moments. So what I'm saying is that if your primary, primary identity is rooted in your job, then your perceived purpose in life will revolve around your job and hear me, everything else will come second. If your primary identity is rooted in your family, then your perceived purpose in life will revolve around your family and everything else will come second. If your primary identity is rooted in your politics, then your perceived purpose in life will revolve around your politics and everything else will come second. But if your primary identity is rooted in Jesus, then your perceived purpose, how you live your life, what you believe your mission is, will revolve around Jesus and everything else will Come second. And I wonder this morning. It's a new year. We're going to come out swinging, all right? I wonder if the reason so many of us who claim the name of Christ fail to be about the business of Christ is because being a Christian is an adjective that describes rather than a noun that defines. So when we say in our mission statement, we exist. We do so understanding that both our physical and our spiritual existence, our very identity and purpose is defined by Jesus. And Ephesians 1 helps us understand what that means. So there are just two things I want you to see this morning from Ephesians 1 as we consider the fact that we exist. And don't worry, the first point has like three sub points. But here's the first thing that I want you to see. Our individual identity is found in Christ. Our individual identity is found in Christ. I know we just read it, but I want to look at these beautiful words again. In Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, Paul says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved. 
In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory in him. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. And these verses teach us so much. But there are three things that I wanna focus on as we consider our individual existence and identity in Christ. Here's the first. I want you to notice where it's found. Where it's found. Notice how often Paul makes it a point to tell us where our identity is found. All right, so if you're like me and you like write all over your Bibles, you're gonna wanna underline these things in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. But, but look at how often he tells us where it's found. Verse three again. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. Here it is in Christ. Right? Verse four. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. Verse seven. In him. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Verse 10, as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. Verse 11, in him, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. Finally, verse 13, in him. You also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. And what Paul wants you to understand, church, is that every blessing that we have, the salvation of our souls, every spiritual gift, your very identity is not merely described by Christ. It's found in him. It's found in him. Paul is speaking about a union with Christ that's deeper than what we often think about when we think about our relationship with Jesus. So in other words, let me remind you, a union with Christ is greater than just the songs we sing about Jesus. It's a union that's greater than what we, that, than the fact that we just like to read some stories about Jesus. It's a union that declares to us that we are in Christ and Christ is actually in us. Paul says it like this in Galatians 2, 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, church, our life, our existence, and our purpose is not just centered around Jesus. It's found in Jesus. Our life is lived through Christ. And watch this. Christ's life is meant to be revealed through us. So we have to understand the weight of this idea for Paul, this idea of being in Christ. Right? It comes up so often in his epistles, nowhere as clear as here in Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14. But this idea of being in him, in Christ, it resonates throughout all of Paul's writing. 
So this is a profound concept for him, but what we have to understand is the weight of it for him because it likely developed in Paul this idea of being in Christ before he was even ever a Christian. See, Dr. Derek Thomas argues that the genesis of this concept for Paul was likely actually the stoning of Stephen. Because you remember Paul, who was then named Saul, was the one who led the charge in murdering Christians. Specifically, the first martyr, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7. And if you remember, it was after this murder that Saul encounters Jesus on the Damascus road, ultimately leading to Saul's conversion. And remember what Jesus says to Saul on the heels of murdering Stephen. Acts 9, 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I have to believe that this encounter for Saul, it said something of the relationship that Stephen had with his savior. It wasn't just that Stephen was committed to Jesus. It wasn't simply that Stephen was a disciple of Jesus. Saul was coming to understand that Stephen was united to Jesus and Jesus to him. So much so that Jesus can look at Saul after Saul persecutes Stephen and Jesus can say, why are you persecuting me? What I'm trying to get you to see is that our life, our identity, our existence, it's not merely defined by Jesus, described by Jesus. It's found in Jesus. Jesus isn't something that when we believe, he gets added into what we already are. Jesus, when we believe, transforms who we are. I mean, Paul explains it well in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the very verse of scripture that our church is named after, right? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, not a better creation, not an updated creation, not a more moral creation. He is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. So let me encourage you with this then. What that means, beloved, is that in Christ, when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't define you by what you once were. He doesn't define you by the mistakes you've made. He doesn't define you by the weak moments, the lack of faith, the seasons of doubts and questions. God doesn't define you by anything that you have done. He looks at you and he sees the pleasing sacrifice of his son. And because you are in Christ, you too are seen as a son or daughter of God himself. and He delights in you. But even more, not only does God see you in Christ, but all that belongs to Christ belongs to you. This leads to the second thing I want you to see as we consider our individual identity in Christ not only where it's found, but what it actually produces. Look at what Paul says there in verse three. He says, blessed is the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens, right? Sit on that for a minute. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. And so Paul, as he begins this letter to the Ephesians, right? He begins by saying, hey, I just need y'all to know that in Christ, you are blessed. But he clarifies what he means when he says, with every spiritual blessing. You see, union with Christ, please hear me. Union with Christ is not a guarantee that you will have everything you want in this life. A union with Christ is not a guarantee that things in your life will never be difficult. Union with Christ is not the promise of earthly health, wealth, and physical prosperity. What being united with Christ produces is every spiritual blessing in the heavens that belongs to Christ now belongs to you. And I know for some of us, if we're honest this morning, the weight of that is lost on us. 
Like you hearing that, like, man, my glass cool. But it would have been nice to get the health. Like physical, mental health, that would have been nice. It would have been nice to have the wealth. Y'all don't have to say amen, you're lying. It would have been nice to have the wealth. It would have been nice if after coming to Christ, the only thing we ever experienced was the mountaintop. But what Paul realizes is that the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ are better than any other blessing we could have in this life. So yes, God does give other blessings and we praise him for each and every physical blessing that he gives. But if we are judging his goodness based on the physical stuff, we're missing the greater evidence of just how faithful God has been to us. Because the greater testimony to his generosity to us is not the physical, it's the spiritual blessings he has lavished on us in Christ. And so what are those blessings? Well, Paul tells us, and I love this. So so let me tell you this, in the original Greek, verses three through 14 are one long sentence. So I know like in English, they broke it up. It's probably good grammar. But but when Paul writes this, it's one long. It's actually in the Greek. It's the longest sentence in the entire Bible. And sometimes Paul actually gets a bad rap for this. I remember one commentator I read, it made me laugh. I mean, somebody actually wrote this in a commentary. He noted that Paul had may have been filled with the spirit, but he clearly wasn't filled with good grammar. Right? Amen. And that very well may be true. But I think there's something beautiful in this complicated run on sentence. I think you actually kind of get a glimpse into how Paul's mind is working in this moment. And I know, let me say this on the front end, I know that Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14 is rich with theological truths that we got to unpack about election and predestination and adoption and inheritance and being sealed. And I'm not doing any of that this morning. Not any of it. That's a different sermon for a different day. Some of y'all are like, well, that was a waste. All right, here it is. I'll do it one day. But it's almost as if Paul, inspired by the Spirit, thinks of the fact that we are blessed in Christ. And then as he thinks of that, his mind just starts racing. Because then as he thinks of being blessed in Christ, he thinks of a specific blessing, the fact that from the very beginning, God had determined and elected to have a people for himself. And as Paul thinks of election, it leads him then to think of the fact that we aren't just any people, we're adopted as sons and daughters. And then as he thinks of adoption, it reminds him of how we were adopted through the shed blood of Jesus. We have redemption and forgiveness. And then he starts thinking about redemption and he realizes, man, that this redemption also provided wisdom and insight into the mystery of God's will that anyone, whether Jew or Gentile, can become his child through Jesus. And then Paul's mind goes to the fact that because we've been adopted through the redeeming work of Jesus, that means that our father has given us an inheritance. And then he recognizes the beautiful truth that the guarantee that we will get that inheritance is not that we perform well enough, but that we have been sealed with the spirit and he will guarantee that we will receive that which has been promised to us. And so you kind of just get to read as Paul's mind becomes flooded and overwhelmed with the blessing of Jesus. And there's no particular order. There's no rhyme or reason. He just starts thinking of blessing. There are thousands of things he could have said, but he just gets overwhelmed. So he can't put a period. He just keeps writing and writing and writing the blessings that we have in Christ that have been so lavished on us. 
And yeah, it might be nice to have those earthly things. But what Paul wants us to see is that if we have nothing that this world has to offer, but we are united to Christ, we have everything that we need. In other words, the spiritual blessing we have in Christ declares to us that if no one else wants us, God has chosen us. That if our families weren't the best and our parents were absent from our life, we have a better father in heaven. If everyone sees our faults and our poor choices and the mistakes we've made, God sees the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ and he delights in us. That if we have no earthly resources to count on, there is an inheritance waiting for us in glory that is better than anything this world could provide. And if it seems like no one has your back, in Christ, you are sealed with the spirit who is fighting for your good and your holiness. And what I'm trying to get you to see is that what we have in Jesus is just better. And if all that is true, then why would we try to find our identity in anything else? Why do we spend so much time pursuing things that pale in comparison to what we already have in Jesus? But there's one more aspect of our individual identity in Christ before we move on. Not only where it's found, not only what it produces, but we have to be honest about this, what our individual identity in Christ demands. You see, as amazing as our identity in Christ is, it demands something of us. Look again at what Paul writes in verses five and six. He says, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Here it is, to the praise of of his glorious grace, which he lavished on us in the beloved one. Then jump down to verses 11 and 12. In him, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. Here it is. So that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. Then verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession. Here it is, to the praise of his glory. What Paul understands is that our response to who we are in Christ and the blessings that we have received in Christ has to be that we will live our lives to make much of the glory of the one who has been so kind to us. Let me say it like this. God has been too good to us for us to fail to give him the glory and the honor and the recognition that is rightly due his name. And so then the question becomes, well, how do we make much of his great name? Thank you for asking. Once again, your theological prowess is unmatched in 2024. Jesus tells us in Matthew 28 when he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And Jesus says, and lo, I am with you always until the very end of the age. So what will this require of us? Not much, just your life. It is coming to recognize and understand once again that Jesus does not simply define aspects of your life. He becomes your life. And the life we have in Christ is better than anything else we could have. And so if that is true, then when we say as a church we exist 
We are not making a claim about just what we do on Sunday mornings. We are not making a claim about what we do when we're doing ministry. We are making a claim about every breath that we take. That as long as there is breath in our lungs, we will be about making much of the glory of our great God. But once again, this will only happen when we understand and believe that our individual identity is found in Christ. But here's the second truth I want you to see this morning and then I'm in my seat. Not only is our individual identity found in Christ, but our corporate identity is found in Christ. Our corporate identity is found in Christ. So we see this in verses 15 through 23. So Paul says, this is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in all my prayers. So what Paul is saying here to the church in Ephesus is I know that you have faith in Jesus and I know it because... I see that you love one another. So he sees not only the individual Christian identity, Christian's identity in Christ, but the church as a whole because he evaluates them collectively by their unified faith and their love for one another. Similar to what Jesus says in John 13, 35, that by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's corporate. So then he goes on, Paul goes on and he tells them that he's praying that God would give them more of a knowledge of who God is and what he has done for them. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of this calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the mighty, mighty working of his strength. Now, here's where I want to draw your attention. Verses 20 through 23. He says, he exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him, that's Jesus, head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. So pay attention to those last two verses. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. So here's what Paul's saying. Break it down for you. Because Jesus Christ was crucified and raised from the dead, because Jesus has conquered sin, death, and the grave, God has placed Jesus in a position of authority over the church. In other words, he has the right to rule the church. Because what is the church? Well, verse 23 tells us it is his body. The church is His body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Listen, and this isn't speaking of individual believers on their own. You by yourself are not the body of Christ. Collectively, we become the body, the physical body of Christ. 
Once again, that's why the gathered church is so important. I know there are, I know there are expectations of your identity in Christ that you cannot fulfill on your own. But I also know that we are living in a day and age where church seems optional. I'm just going to call it what it is. Where church, it just seems optional. And many Christians claim to be followers of Jesus, but don't want anything to do with the church. I know I've hit this before, but I'm going to hit it again because it's so important. The problem with that. Listen, I know that the church is jacked up. I know it's messed up. I am frustrated with the church as a whole. You guys a little bit, but the church as a whole. I'm frustrated with the church. That's all right. Y'all can be frustrated with me. Amen. The church is messy. But it's still the bride of Jesus and he is still redeeming the church unto himself. And he will see the church be glorious and righteous and holy in all of its ways. It's just a little messed up right now. But the response isn't to abandon the bride of Christ, because what else are you going to go to? He is redeeming, according to Ephesians 2, we'll see it next week, one person to himself, his bride. You're either a part of the bride or you're not. But see, the problem with this idea that church is optional is that the Bible knows nothing. Y'all have heard me say it. I hope you memorize it. Go say it to other people. The Bible knows nothing of a covenant relationship with God apart from a covenant relationship with his people. That is why Ruth says, first, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. There is no faithfulness to Jesus apart from his bride. And yeah, the church is messed up. But you know what would make it not messed up? Us not being in it. But we're a part of it. And we're messed up. But we trust that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. We need one another collectively to function as the body of Christ. But here's what I want you to see. It says that we are his body the fullness of the one who fills all things. Now, I need you to catch the weight of what is being said here because we say the body of Christ so much that I think we forget what it actually means. What Paul is saying is that God's intention is that we, the church, would be the full physical expression of Jesus Christ who fills all things. Let me give it to you like this. The avenue through which Jesus will fill all things in the world is through the church. So let me make it as plain as possible. I don't want you to miss it. We should pray that the presence of Jesus would fill our city. We should pray that the presence of Jesus would fill the West End. We should pray that the presence of Jesus would fill our schools, our jobs, our hospitals, and our homes. But make no mistake, what we are praying is that we would fill our city. That we would fill the West End, that we would fill the schools, the jobs, the hospitals and the homes, because we collectively, we are the presence of Jesus wherever we are. One of the greatest dangers of failing to recognize our collective identity in Jesus is we will fail to fulfill the task God has set before us because we are the means through which God intends to bring the nations under the rule of Jesus Christ. Like Jesus ain't going to show up and do this apart from us. We are his body for a reason. We, the church, we're the answer to so many of the prayers we're praying. But the problem is we've placed our identity in the wrong things. 
Listen to me. We are not a social club. We are not a self-help group. Though I pray that you are helped by being here. We are not merely a positive moral example. Though your morality matters. We, New Breed Church, are meant to function as the very body of Jesus wherever we go and in whatever we do. So the question we have to answer is this. Will we find our identity in Christ? And as we seek to answer that question, will we individually and corporately find our identity in Christ? As we seek to answer that question, let me remind you, Christ is the best place for us to find our identity individually and collectively. Here's why. Because last time I checked, your job didn't die to pay for your sins. Your family didn't die to pay for your sins. Your political party didn't die to pay for your sins. Your therapist didn't die to pay for your sins. But Jesus, he lived the perfect life that we should have lived. Because when we couldn't get to God, he came to us. He was perfect in all of his ways. He went to the cross to bear our reproach. And by his stripes, we are healed. And they put nails in his feet and nails in his hand. And they crucified him on a hill called Calvary. And they put him in a tomb. And he stayed in the tomb on Friday. And he stayed in the tomb on Saturday. And then early Sunday morning, he got up having conquered sin, death, and the grave. There is nothing and no one better in which we could find our identity than Jesus because it is because of Jesus that we exist. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you would give us grace not to find our identity in the things of this world, not to find our identity in our jobs, in our achievements, in our families, not to find our identity in in our politics or, or whatever else we might be tempted to find our identity in. I pray that you would give us grace to just believe that Jesus is better and to know that the opportunity to be in Christ and have Christ in us is available to us because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. To him be all praise and glory and honor now and forevermore. Amen.